Welcome to the Pain of Scale, the Notion podcast exploring the most critical challenges for venture-backed tech entrepreneurs along the startup, grow-up, and scale-up journey. Every two weeks, we speak to founders, experts, and venture capitalists from around the world about their experiences. Hi, I'm Paul, still with Stephen, still running our Pain of Scale episodes recorded before the coronavirus crisis. Who are we listening to today? So we're going to be hearing from Peter Zotto, one of the co-founders of ProfitWell. We have the ProfitWell guys kind of (laughs) regular time to talk about pricing because it's one of the gnarliest subjects. And we see so many times people really struggle with investing their time in thinking about the monetization strategy and the impact that it can have. Before COVID, after COVID, this stuff is absolutely on point understanding people's willingness to pay, understanding what they're willing to pay for, understanding how they're willing to pay, and building the the kind of muscles and the discipline to continue to gather that information, to localize your pricing, to to really put in place kind of strategies. It's, It's critical because what this all does is all aligns with the problem you're solving. And in the current climate, that problem might have changed. Mm -hmm. And the customers that you're serving might have changed. So this is a critical discipline. Yeah, I really love when he talks about values. Values on a spectrum, and especially software is intangible. So we know that the value that X software might have to you, Stephen, or to me is very different. And in a time of crisis, obviously, certainly even me, I revise, for instance, all my SaaS subscriptions when I started to hibernate some costs and suddenly the value of software changes. So if the company on the other end doesn't see that I am changing and the customer is shifting, they won't be able to react and maybe maintain me as a customer. So yeah, it's, I think it's very valid in the times of shifting and realignment that we are all going through. 100%. So, so let's listen to Peter. And we're back. My usual sentence when we started this. Hi, Stephen. How are you? I'm good, Paul. And you? Very, very good. I, I'm very excited. I also say that at every start of every episode about the episode today because we're doing pricing and we have this kind of unlimited wealth of knowledge that comes from ProfitWell because I think it's the third time we have someone for ProfitWell talking about pricing. I think we had uh, Patrick the first time. And was it Lily? Lily? Yeah, the second yeah. time, exactly. So what do we have today and why is pricing important? Yeah, it's a gift that keeps on giving. I think that's the best way. Absolutely. Profit well. <laughs> um, yeah, so we're, we've got Peter Zotto today, who's the general manager and one of the co-founders. And this is like one of the trickiest of subjects. Yeah. Pricing and more importantly, kind of monetization strategies. And, and, and it's a really tough challenge. It's absolutely critical to success. And anybody that's run a business, set up a company, knows how hard it is to figure out what and how to, to price. But what we've seen, and I've learned more than anything else from ProfitWell, is the profound impact that a really well thought through pricing strategy can have on on revenue growth, customer retention and, and revenue expansion, which are all critical, obviously, within SaaS. But what I've also learned from them is it's really overlooked. It's extraordinary, but I can relate to it. Their research shows that software companies on average change pricing once every three years. I think that's right, isn't it, Peter? That's right, yep. But they can also show the opposite, which is organizations who are understanding pricing, talking to their customers, researching it, validating their decisions, and making relatively frequent pricing changes have a much higher growth, better monetization, 
better retention and better revenue expansion. And that's just a kind of such a profoundly important point. And that why we keep coming back to this. So yeah, Peter's one of the the co-founders and general manager at ProfitWell. And to my mind, these guys are the foremost providers of pricing insights and SaaS performance metrics on the planet today. So Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for having me. And thanks for the absolutely fantastic intro. I, I feel like, Stephen, you, you mentioned all the things that I would mention, which is uh, more <laughs> pricing changes correlate to more success and less pricing changes correlate to negative takeaways. So uh, we can just that. probably leave it at that. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do that. <laughs> anyway, let's jump straight in. Look, cool. given that, given the profound importance of this, why is it so overlooked? This is the $64,000 pound question, which is that we have yet to figure out, I think the subscription economy is wising up to spending more time on monetization. But by and large, I think it's been overlooked because it was never a priority to begin with, especially for companies that were starting out, that were raising a lot of money. And what they would do is say, okay, the first thing we want to do is we want to get product market fit. Cool, we got product market fit. Let's just acquire as many customers as we can. And pricing was always an afterthought. And it was, well, let's just look at like, you know, what our, you know, what the predecessor did or what our competitors are doing, or let's just put a finger in the air and pick something that we think feels right. There was never any data or real sort of rigor or framework behind pricing. And so it was easy to sort of let it go by the wayside, which is unfortunate because of, to your point on the intro, pricing and monetization at large, right? Pricing, packaging, positioning, et cetera, have a massive impact, not just on the growth of your business, but everything from the way that you think about your unit economics, the way that you think about profitability, the way that you can justify hiring more people directly correlates or translates into how much you're charging for a product. And then I suppose the transparency that comes with it. So it's just a missed opportunity, unfortunately. Yeah. I just want to pick on something you said, pricing and then monetization, and you also yep. mentioned packaging. Could you just kind of describe the, the difference between those those things? Pricing is one piece of the, the pie, right? If you were to think about the number of pillars that hold up a business, pricing is certainly one of them. But if you start to peel back the layers of what pricing really means, what you find is actually it's, it's more about this concept of monetization and the way that we think about it at ProfitWell and the way that I've always thought about it as a as an entrepreneur of sorts is it's not enough just to put a price point on a product because ultimately you can have a perfect product and you can have perhaps a perfect price point. But if you're not selling to the perfect persona or if you're not packaging it in the way that that persona wants to buy the product, then they're never going to consume the product. You're never going to convert them into paying customers. And all you've done is find product market fit, but you've lacked the opportunity to convert them at a high rate. And so in order to do that in perhaps the more intelligent ways, you want to think about pricing as one lever of the monetization growth spectrum, which is to say you have pricing as one of them, you have packaging, what features belong or what functionality belong in what package or what you deliver, who are the right personas that you're selling to. So are you selling to a large business, a small business, are you selling to a VP, a C-level executive, are you selling to a consumer that has XYZ type of income, are you selling to a significantly lower income? Because ultimately, if you don't have the right personas, then ultimately nothing else really matters. So that's your foundation. And then on top of that, you have things like, what's the right value metric? And this is another overlooked component of the pricing equation, which is to say, what is the unit of measurement that you're actually going to charge on? And one of the things that we as technologists and operators and technology companies have always done, or at least by the data that we've collected have always done, we've looked at sort of the bellwether SaaS companies or the bellwether software companies and said, okay, we know that Salesforce charges by user. We think that's a good metric. That's the one we're going to go with. 
but that doesn't always correlate to what the consumer finds valuable, right? And so, you know, for example, if you looked at Netflix, Netflix is a one price point. You can consume all the content you want for as long as you want. If Netflix decided to change that to you pay on a per show basis in an a la carte manner, that would likely wildly change the impact of that value to the customer, to the consumer, and ultimately they may decide that it's not nearly as worth it as it was before for an all-you-can-eat type package. And so we want to be particularly mindful what that value metric is and what the unit of measurement should correlate to for success. And so all of these things, just to round it out, bubble up into the right monetization strategy. And as a recap, it's pricing, it's packaging, it's positioning, it's understanding who your buyers are, and then ultimately what's that unit of measurement that grows with your buyer. And you mentioned earlier on about the impact that you know excellence in this area has on, on unit economics. We, we could just maybe just dig into that. And I know I alluded to, to some of it, but um, you know, how does pricing and monetization and packaging excellence translate in the real world? And you guys have so much data on this into world-class unit economics. This is probably a little bit harder to visualize in a podcast, right? Because it, it's a bit of a nebulous concept. But the crux of it comes down to if you get your pricing right and you figure it out that, look, you have the right customer and you're selling the right package to them and you're doing it in a way that's positioned to exactly what the value that they are going to generate from your product, then ultimately what's going to happen is that they're going to stick around for a lot longer on that product. Your LTV is going to go up your churn is going to go down, the acquisition cost will likely be significantly lower because you've identified the exact perfect persona. You're going to hit them with the exact functionality that they need and you're going to position it for them perfectly. And so your acquisition costs are going to, to lower. So all of these things are in play, right? If you can lower your acquisition costs, the money you spend from a sales marketing perspective goes down. You can take that money and you can spend it in R&D or on the product. If you have them for a lot longer, you know that that LTV goes up and everybody that's a sort of budding entrepreneur or an existing software company know that 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 translates into things like higher valuations, higher multiples, et cetera. And you want to focus on that. And then ultimately sort of the, the worst of them of all, which is churn, right? One of the things that's really hard sometimes to predict for companies that we see when they haven't figured out their pricing is they have churn that's sort of wildly out of control. One month it's high, one month it's low, but they don't really know why. A lot of times we can deduce the fact that that's actually probably because they have a poor packaging strategy. And so you have customers that are coming in under the impression that they're going to get a lot of value under one package. They don't get nearly enough value as they thought they were going to get. And so they churn off the product. Similarly to that, you get customers that feel like they're getting too much value and they're paying far too much. And so they churn off that product and they go to a competitor. So all these things play nicely hand in hand with this sort of concept of having good unit economics, but you can't do that well without having some framework for building a better pricing strategy. Otherwise, you know, your foundation's sort of broken. And if you get good unit economics, that's just likely because you've done a good job at guessing or timing the market. If you have bad unit economics, you get some thinking to do. Let's dig into that. And this might be even harder to kind of visualize on a podcast, but can you explain some of the models that you recommend organizations use to understand, you know, willingness to pay and perceptions of value? Yeah, sure. I think a variation of this is something that we use internally at ProfitWell when we deal with clients on our Price Intelligently platform. One of the easiest things that you can do, or I should say one of the easiest traps that people fall into when they're starting a pricing sort of strategy research process is they'll go to an existing customer base and they'll ask them, hey, how much would you pay for my product? The problem with that or the, the big, one of the bigger problems we see with that is that human beings don't look at value as a specific point, right? We think about value on a spectrum. And what I mean by that for the folks listening at home is that I don't necessarily know that the computer that I've dialed into this call with or that we're having this podcast discussion on is 
exactly 1500 pounds or 2000 pounds, but I know that it's more expensive than the cup of coffee that's sitting next to me. And I know that that cup of coffee is significantly less expensive than, than the room that we're in, for instance. So when it comes down to determining what value is, we think about it on this spectrum and it becomes insanely difficult to do this when we're talking about things like software, because oftentimes software, as we all know, is intangible. So it's not like a you know really well-designed shoe or piece of clothing or car that I can touch, see, and smell, and I can figure out the value from that. I have to sort of understand where the intersections of value are. The way that we do that and the way that we think about doing that is using a modified version of a Van Westendorp price sensitivity meter. And there's a former Dutch economist guy named Peter Van Westendorp that came up with this concept. And what he's doing is essentially asking ranged questions. So the way that you actually execute this is you start to ask questions to a particular audience that you think are relevant buyers for your product. And I would recommend people do not do this to an existing customer base. And I'll give you some more anecdotes on how to do this in a moment. But the questions revolve around one, when is a price point for this product or this potential product so expensive that no matter how much value you get out of it, you can't consider purchasing it? All the way down to when do you think this product is so inexpensive, you're actually going to question the quality of the product. And this becomes insanely important for many startups out there because when you're selling to enterprise businesses, we have this perhaps fear as entrepreneurs that we should undervalue our product or underprice our product. And it becomes undervalued in the minds of these enterprises, these buyers within an enterprise. And ultimately that starts to mess with unit economics, the LTV numbers, the CAC numbers that we mentioned earlier. So the way that we combat this is we start to ask questions around when is this becoming a good deal? When does it start to get a little expensive, but there's still enough value that you can make a purchasing decision? So those four range questions give us really good sort of top and bottom numbers. And then it gets at the intersection of the heart of what's a sort of median willingness to pay. And so you, you add all those up, you do some math, and then what ends up coming out of this is you get what we call an optimal price band, right? So the band upon which you can price within, and you get something that we call an indifference price point. And that's that sort of intersecting line between all of those four points. And that indifference price point is a good indicator of where you should price if you've done nothing else. There's the willingness to pay, but I suppose there's also the willingness to pay for what, you know, which is the capabilities yeah. and the features yep. that, that we offer. So yep. we need to kind of intersect that don't okay. we, with perceptions of value. Yep. So how do, we, how do we unearth those kind of insights? The first part of this process before asking a bunch of, of questions in this sort of range spectrum that I'll talk about in a moment is we want to introduce the concept of a product. If you don't have a product in market today, that's okay. Oftentimes entrepreneurs have wireframes or they have mock-ups or they may even have actually working models in a product like Envision or Abstract or some sort of tool like that. What we want to do is we want to introduce that product and the value that it produces for customers and you know specifically highlight that value in things like wireframes, a couple minutes of a video, audio transcriptions of the product. And then we want to ask a series of questions. But that intro or product video allows us to essentially pinpoint where we want people to ascribe value, which is important then to understand upon which you take the next set of questions, which are, as I mentioned earlier, when is a product getting too expensive all the way down to when is it so inexpensive in a question of quality. And the other sort of interesting tidbit here is that when people work with ProfitWell, what we typically do is we don't actually, if you're, if you're a product that's in the market already and you have paying customers, that's fantastic. We don't necessarily just want to look at collecting data from an existing customer base because often they love or hate your product for different reasons than upon which they became an existing customer. And what I mean by that is most people here have either purchased or leased a car at some point in their life. You may purchase or lease a car in your 20s because 
you think it looks great, it goes fast, it has a really loud stereo system, and it's got great red paint. 10 years later, you might renew that lease or you might buy a new car of the same sort of brand, but you're buying it for a series of different reasons. You now have a family, so you want higher safety quality. You want a minivan that has much more room to put in the kids' stuff. You want to have four-wheel drive because you're not as sure about your driving skills today than you were 10 years ago. So we don't necessarily want to ask existing customers. So what we do is we partner with companies like what we just consider market panels, and they are they are all around us. It's easy to Google around for, for companies that have market panels. They provide you access from anyone from a sort of stay-at-home mom in London or New York, stay-at-home dad in Munich or Texas, all the way to CIOs of, say, Fortune 500 companies, if that's the type of buyer you're potentially looking for. And so you can aggregate all these buyers, run them through a series of, of videos or audio text or texts that allow you to describe the value, and then they can enter into a survey and you can ask them these four range questions. And how early can and should founders be exploring these willingness to pay and perceptions of value? The question is a bit of a trick question in the sense that, of course, my answer is like, it's never too early to start doing this. I think in reality, though, this is one of the problems of being an entrepreneur because everybody's telling you that you have to do these things starting really early, right? You have to set up your focus on product market fit. You have to focus on monetization. You have to focus on hiring your first VP of sales. You have to focus on you know, getting your, your SEO in check. So I think the reality is, listen, if you don't have product market fit, then you're, you're gonna be in trouble regardless whether you have the right pricing or not. So it's not that you should not focus on pricing early. I think you should. I think you gotta figure out one, who your buyers are first and foremost, who you're selling to, what the outcome of using your product actually should be. Because if you don't have that stuff right yet, then you can't ask a series of pricing questions because the value is not necessarily correlated to what your product does at this point. So while I would tell you it should be done early and often, as far as exactly when in the life cycle or journey of an entrepreneur, it probably depends. For folks that are working at larger companies or established companies, and that may be, you know, you have, you have a product, you have a couple of paying customers, what I would tell you is start doing it now. And the other part of that is this shouldn't be a one and done process. In fact, we recommend people change their pricing every six months. That doesn't mean that they actually change their price points. That might mean they change their value metric, they change the packaging strategy up. But this is one of those things that like your product, like your sales strategy, your marketing strategy, monetization strategy should be often considered in management meetings, in annual board meetings, in annual kickoffs. These are things that you want to do on a fairly continual basis because you invest in the other parts of your product and your business. You should absolutely invest in your monetization strategy as well. So I'm doing that and I'm nailing it every six months. And now I'm starting to grow and I'm starting to think about international expansion. I mean, pricing is very different around the world. How important is pricing localization to software companies as they grow? Localization is, uh, you know this one well, Stephen, this is near and dear to our heart. Patrick and I talk about this all the time. Localization is one of the easiest rates of optimization you can make when you're working on a pricing strategy. And I'll try to decouple that in a moment here. But it's incredibly important because different cultures and different parts of the world have different willingness to pay for the exact same product. And so if you're not optimizing for price localization, not only are you leaving a lot of money on the table, that you are likely leaving a lot of high con potential converting customers on the table and you're doing yourself and your product team a disservice. So how do you do that? It's not too dissimilar from what we talked about earlier, which is you need to run a bunch of studies to figure out what the actual willingness to pay is in a particular region. But I'll give you a couple of tips here. One is that if nothing else, 
you should change your currency symbol to reflect the actual location's currency. Sometimes that's switching it from dollars to euros or from euros to pounds sterling, et cetera, et cetera. If you need a billing system to do that, I certainly would recommend finding a billing system to enable you to do that. The other thing to think about is we see, you mentioned this earlier in the conversation, Stephen, we've seen into about 16 or 17,000 subscription businesses across the globe. We know that the Nordics region has a much higher willingness to pay in aggregate than any other region in the world. So if you're selling into the Nordics or you're in the Nordics yourself, raise your prices by about 20% compared to, to North America. We see that London and in general, sort of Western Europe has a higher willingness to pay than North America. We see that North America has a higher willingness to pay than South America. And then we see sort of Eastern Asia and Asia in general have about quite a bit lower willingness to pay than North America. So you want to keep things like this in mind as you're starting to think about your pricing strategy around the globe. But to answer your question directly, price localization is incredibly important. It doesn't take a lot of heavy lifting to do it, but it's one of those easy wins that you can get. One of the things that has been really fascinating to me and incredibly helpful to our portfolio is the developing better understanding of, of relative preference. At the session that you guys ran for us last week, when the podcast comes out, it'll be a few months back. It was incredible the difference between the perceptions of value from founders that you've surveyed and the perceptions of value of their customers. And I just wonder how you recommend that companies really understand relative preference of features and capabilities. This is a tricky one because you have to figure out how to decouple the oftentimes sort of the founder's vision and laser focus on exactly what he or she thinks is utmost valuable and importance to the customer versus what reality dictates. And that can be really hard sometimes, especially if you're in a you know, crowded market that's been somewhat commoditized and you're not sort of reinventing or disrupting a larger market that hasn't been done before. It's really hard to stand on a or sort of a pedestal and tell everybody exactly how much you think the, the value should be ascribed to your product, when in reality, maybe the market's set at a particular price point or a particular package for sort of functionality set that you can't move much. The way that we do this, and oftentimes, especially in our early days, what we were hired for was often not actually just pricing strategy on its own. We were hired to settle arguments between the, the product team and the marketing team. And what I mean by that is the marketing team wanted to move forward with you know sort of X type of strategy, and the product team would argue that that wasn't the right strategy given what they were building and the roadmap that they had. And so they couldn't come to an agreement and we were often brought in at different companies to sort of settle those arguments with data and say, hey, look, actually the market doesn't want what product team is building. You should focus on this other thing. Or the market does want the, what the product team is building and the marketing team should sort of fall in line with that. So the way that we do that is was we use a tool called sort of relative preference the easiest way to think about this and how you might do it on your own is no two things are valued sometimes exactly the same, but we want to zoom out and look at components or drivers of value in aggregate. And so the way that we do this is we don't want to sort of ask questions like, hey, can you rank this feature or can you rank this functionality for me on a scale of one to 10? Because inevitably, you know, again, the human brain, we, we want all that sounds good and we want it right now. So if we give people the option to sort of rank everything on a scale of one to 10, inevitably what happens is we rank everything between a nine or a 10, right? We all want amazing things. And so what we do is sort of very simply just ask forced trade-off questions. This is known well in the survey market research world as conjoint or max diff. And it allows us to ask what's most valuable to you versus what's least valuable to you. And if you ask a statistically accurate sample size, and sometimes that varies based on confidence intervals, but let's say you ask a, a, you know, a group of 50 people out of the following features, what's most important, what's least important, and you can only choose one of each, what ends up happening is you get a far more interesting look at the value as it relates to that 
population of what's really valuable to them versus what's not valuable to them. And what we do when folks work with us at ProfitWell, what we do is we take that and we layer on different segments of the market and different components of the product. So it allows us to identify packaging structure and positioning structure for, say, a a VP of sales at a growth stage post-Series B company in the United States versus an established enterprise in the EU that are buying the exact same product, you might find that they value the product or the functionality of the product actually quite a bit differently. And therefore, it's going to inform the way that we go to market, both from a you know, marketing command gen content marketing perspective, as well as sort of tactical hand-to-hand combat when it comes to the actual sales rep themselves. How do they talk about the product to drive value for that enterprise company versus how do they talk about the product to drive value for that post-series B startup in Silicon Valley? So these things allow us to get more specific and more or more tactical with our strategy as, as it relates to go-to-market. Yeah, and if you can get that kind of data, as you said, aligned to different personas and different segments and combined then with the willingness to pay, you've got some extraordinary levels of insight through, in some ways, some relatively straightforward practices. Yeah, I think the thing with this stuff is that people silo this type of a conversation to just pricing. The reality is this type of information informs a lot of different layers of your business. The go-to-market strategy the product roadmap, the marketing strategy that goes in and go to market. So I think people often overlook the simplicity of pricing and monetization as a one-trick pony, so to speak. It has multiple layers and byproducts that can inform a lot of different components of how you drive value for the business. We often use it internally in our hiring practices. You know, hiring in, for technology companies, especially in the United States where I am, is, is incredibly competitive. And one of the things that we do when it comes to putting out ads online right, to the community boards that we are all often vying for eyes of candidates, we try to use language after studying what's most important versus what's least important to different candidates. And we use what we think from the market has been deemed the most valuable components of the language they want to see in an actual hiring profile. And we use that to inform the types of candidates we want to hire. So it can be leveraged in a lot of different ways to make your life easier, uh, not just have a perfect pricing strategy. Maybe we can wrap up with one or two companies that you think are doing a really, really good job at this pricing and monetization. As far as who does this really well, we think the folks at a company called HubSpot do this particularly well. And for those of you who don't know them, they were the initial sort of visionaries for the the idea of content and inbound marketing. The way that they price, their value metric they decided was number of leads or contacts in their database which was sort of brilliant, you know, perhaps not so necessarily at the time, but looking back on it, it's brilliant because what it does is they've essentially opened their platform or their product to everybody at an organization that uses it. And oftentimes software companies are using their, their product. And there's no limit to the amount of licenses or users that you can have. And everybody is tasked with the same goal, which is get more people into the platform. More people in the platform means more people that we can market to. More people that we can market to will likely mean more people that we can sell our product to. The more we sell our product, the more money we have. And therefore, the more revenue directly correlates with the more leads in a system or the more contacts, which is what I'm using synonymously here. Those two things are perfectly aligned with the way that we want to buy HubSpot. And so we don't mind a price going up or adding new contacts in a range where the price goes up because from an outsider's perspective, it would assume that the more contacts we're adding, the more money we're making, and therefore the more willingness to pay we have for a product like HubSpot. So it's directly correlated to success. They lower the barriers to entry for users. They increase the barrier for outcome-based pricing in this particular case. So we think they do a particularly great job. There's some larger businesses out there like Atlassian 
who went public a couple of years ago. They do a particularly great job when it comes to their pricing. I actually think Slack does a fantastic job. Um, people are pretty familiar with Slack at this point, the, the internal communication platform. What they did is, you know, they give you, I think, up to five users for free. But one of the thresholds that you pass pretty quickly is the amount of historical text that you can go back and review. So as soon as you, last time I checked, as soon as you pass the 10,000 line mark or something to that effect, you have to now pay. Otherwise, the data or the text, the conversations actually disappear. At some point, that becomes a major problem for organizations. But, you know, they, they realize that they get people on the platform, they start them small as smaller organizations. And as those organizations grow, they add more people. From that perspective, they would assume that the more people means higher success rates for that business, and therefore they're willing to pay more for adding an additional user to Slack and then opening up that historical data piece, which means that you now start paying a couple bucks per user or whatever it happens to be. So Slack and HubSpot do a particularly great job. Peter, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you, and um, I'm sure we'll be back again asking you and, and Lily and Patrick onto our podcast oh, yeah. in the coming series. Yeah, we learn so much every time. It's amazing. You guys yeah. are really the... Wow, it's impressive. Thank you very much, Peter. Wow, guys, thanks for the ego boost today. <laughs> this is great. We should do this once yeah. a day. I'm happy that uh, we got together today and hopefully this helps folks that are listening in. Thank you so much. Remember, you can find an in-depth write-up of this interview along with the dozens and dozens we've done on the Notion website at notion.vc under resources. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcast or follow us on Spotify and Google Podcast. Thank you.